All right. Well, let me uh, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me, Heavenly Father. We are so grateful to be here today, Father. We are thankful for your unconditional love for us. We are thankful, Father, that you are a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, Father, we thank you that your worthiness to be worshipped is not dependent upon the circumstances of our lives, but Father, it is dependent upon you and who you are. And because you never change, God, because you never change, your worthiness to be worshipped never changes. And so, Father, as we have as we have gathered together today, our desire is that you would be honored. You would be honored in the way that we um, in the way that we come to the preaching of your word. Father, that we would have, have high expectations, Father, to, to learn and to grow and to be molded into, into better followers of Jesus. Uh, Father, I pray that as we, as we come into this time together, Father, we would, uh, we would have high expectations of, of worshiping you. Father, that we would be eager to, uh, to worship you with church family. Uh, Father, we ask your blessings upon this time. Lord, we can get together as much as we want. And no change could ever take place in our lives if you don't work in us. Father, we can't, we can't become the people that you have called us to be on our own. We need you. And so, Father, we ask that you would work in us during this time today. Father, we lift up those in our church family who, uh, who aren't able to be here right now. Father, we just pray your continued blessings upon them. Father, we pray that you would keep us all unified as one body during this, uh, during this uh, interesting season of life in our lives as individuals and in our life as a church. Father, we lift up, um, we lift up uh, just all the things that are going on in our world today, all the things going on in our, uh, in our nation. Father, we, uh, we pray for, for peace. Father, we pray for uh, wisdom. Father, we pray for the church to, uh, to humbly and yet confidently uh, represent Jesus well uh, to our community, to our nation, to the world. Uh, Father, we join with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. And Father, we say that Jesus is the most important one in life. That following Jesus is the most important thing in all of life. Lord, that your word is the foundation upon which we build our lives. And so, Father, as one united voice with your church today, Father, we just say, Father, that we love you. But we declare, Father, that it's only because you have first loved us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we are able to love you in return. Father, would you be with us? Watch over us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will, open up in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The title of our message today is Genuine Disciple-Making, Missional Strengthening. Genuine Disciple-Making, Missional Strengthening. We'll be there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now I want to go ahead and read that passage and you follow along in God's Word. And this is the Word of God. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, 
that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of God. Now, last week, we began studying the second half of the narrative section of First Thessalonians. So if you'll remember, uh, the first half of this narrative section really began at the beginning of chapter 2. And so chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, uh, we saw Paul uh, really defending himself against accusations that when he was with the Thessalonians, he wasn't a genuine minister of the gospel. Now, as we get into the second half of this narrative section, which we began looking at last week, starting in chapter 2, verse 17, and going through chapter 3, verse 13, uh, we see now Paul is, is having to defend himself about his actions since he left uh, Thessalonica. They're accusing him of, of not caring about the Thessalonians, saying, well, he just left in the middle of the night and he hadn't been back. And so Paul's in this process of defending himself. But as he, as he kind of presents this uh, defense, at the same time, we get this incredible inside look into the heart of a genuine disciple maker. And so there's uh, so much that we can learn here from this passage. Now, when I use the term disciple maker, I'm referring to someone who takes seriously, not just in thought, but in action, the command of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. That's what I mean by the word uh, disciple making. Someone who is is seeking and, and, and doing all they can to lead other people to faith in Jesus. And then once those people uh, come to faith in Jesus, walk with those folks, helping them continue to grow and grow and grow in their faith in the Lord, helping them grow stronger and stronger in their walk with Jesus. Now, in, in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 2, we saw that genuine disciple makers are characterized by a missional longing. In other words, genuine disciple makers have a deep desire to, to build good, close uh, relationships, have personal interaction with disciples, because that's part of the disciple-making mission to which Jesus has called us. Now, today, as we look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, uh, we're going to see that genuine disciple-makers are characterized by uh, missional strengthening, missional strengthening. Here, here's what I mean by that. People who are genuinely seeking to obey Jesus' command to go and make disciples will do everything they can to help disciples grow stronger and stronger in their faith so that they're not tempted to, to give up whenever persecution cr- comes their way. That's part of what it means to be a disciple maker is to help people grow stronger in their faith so when persecution comes, they won't give up. Last week's passage led us to this statement, we must pour ourselves into developing deep disciple-making relationships. But then what do we do with those relationships? Do we just sit around and drink coffee and have a meal and, and shoot the breeze, talk about the game, talk about the weather? Is that what we do with deep disciple-making relationships? No, it's not. We find the answer in this passage today. We use those deep relationships to help one another grow stronger and stronger and stronger in our faith in the Lord. Let me give you a, a, a statement, uh, kind of a summary statement for today. We must pour ourselves into encouraging disciples to view suffering for Christ as normal so they will stand strong against the enemy. We, as, as a church, as, as Christians, 
we must pour ourselves into encouraging disciples to view suffering for Christ as normal. Not abnormal, not something strange, but as normal. So they'll stand strong against the enemy. Church, I want us to be faithful to Jesus. And the way that we're faithful to Jesus is by being faithful to his mission. And the way that we're faithful to his mission is by being genuine disciple makers. And genuine disciple makers allow God to use them as a tool of strengthening in the lives of other believers. Why is this important? Because following Jesus isn't easy. If you think that following Jesus isn't easy, it might be that you're not really following Jesus. Following Jesus is difficult. And you you know that. There There are times when it's hard. And so God uses more mature believers as a source of encouragement in the lives of other believers. It's kind of like a student who is on the verge of, of giving up hopes of ever passing the exam. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but, but I have. Okay, You're on the verge of, I, I'm not going to pass it. There's just no way I can do this. Only to have a parent or a teacher or maybe even a friend come alongside and say, you got this, you can do it. And, and sometimes that word of encouragement, it just, it just helps you take the next step, right? Instead of just throwing in the towel, uh, laying that pencil down and saying, I can't do it, I, I, can't, I can't pass it. It helps you keep going. And so we as believers need to make ourselves available to be used by God to help other believers persevere to the end. Last week, we had a couple of descriptions of disciple makers. We said disciple makers long for personal interaction with disciples and disciple makers view disciple making as their primary mission. Let's add three things to that list today. Okay, let's add three things to that list of of descriptions of genuine disciple makers. The first for today is this disciple makers make sacrifices for the sake of strengthening disciples. Disciple makers make sacrifices for the sake of strengthening disciples. We see this here in verse 1. In in, in light of Paul's inability to return to the Thessalonians, remember what we looked at last week. He said, I wanted to get back to y'all. I'm trying, but Satan is hindering. We don't know all the obstacles, but, but something was keeping Paul from getting back to the Thessalonians. And so he reminds the Thessalonians in his letter, I did the next best thing. I did the next best thing I I could do. Instead of me coming to you, I couldn't do that, but I sent Timothy to you. I sent Timothy to you. He writes, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. I want you to notice carefully what Paul says in verse 1. It's easy to miss. First, we're reminded that the Thessalonians uh, and the Thessalonians are reminded of how deeply Paul cares for them. And just look at his language. When we could bear it no longer. We could, I mean, this, this, this isn't like, oh, we, we kind of were concerned about you. This is like this pressure on them. And when, when they were about to bust, I mean, they couldn't, they, couldn't, they, I mean, they couldn't sleep at night because they're so concerned about the Thessalonians and how their walk with the Lord is going. We could bear it no longer. They had all they could take of not knowing how the Thessalonians were doing. Were they faithfully following Jesus? Were they wavering in their faith? Were they close to throwing in the towel? And were they serving Jesus in spite of the persecution that they were facing? Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they didn't know the answers to these questions, so they could bear it no longer. They were genuinely concerned for these new disciples. And, and the genuineness of their concern is seen in how they responded. They responded, Paul responded, uh, specifically Paul, in a, in a self-sacrificial way. He was willing to make sacrifices. They responded by inconveniencing themselves for the sake of the spiritual stability of the Thessalonians. They responded by inconveniencing themselves for the spiritual stability 
of the Thessalonians. It's easy to read over this in verse 1, but Paul emphasizes with his wording that sending Timothy to them was no small gesture. It was no small uh, act of concern on his part. He says, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. You see how he's, he's kind of building it. We were willing to, like, sometimes we wouldn't be willing, but we were willing, this wasn't easy, we were willing to be left behind at Athens, that's important, we'll talk about it in a minute, alone, alone. It's not super clear exactly how the events unfolded after Paul um, and Silas and maybe Timothy was with them. We're not 100% sure. After they left Thessalonica, we know that they went to Berea and Paul left Berea and went to Athens and he sent word for Timothy and Silas to join him as soon as possible. And then uh, in, in, in Acts, it kind of skips and we have, we have Paul then in Corinth and, and his two companions uh, coming to Corinth with him. But what seems that if we kind of connect the dots, what seems to be um, the, the sequence of events is that they ended up joining him in Athens. But then while he's in Athens, he sends them back to Macedonia. Now, there's two key cities in Macedonia. One was Thessalonica and one was Philippi. And so what seems that uh, seems that happens is that Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica and he sends Silas back to Philippi. We just kind of connecting dots with Scripture. And he is left by himself in Athens. So why is that such a big deal? I mean, in a, in a in Paul's big boy, I mean, can't he take care of himself? Well, I want you to think about this. Athens was full of idolatry. Athens was full of pagan philosophies. Athens was full of people who didn't follow Jesus. It's hard to follow Jesus in the middle of, of a whole city of people who don't follow Jesus. One of the most important things for you as a follower of Jesus, when you're surrounded by people that don't follow Jesus, is to have another follower of Jesus with you. Right? And that, 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 that's a huge source of encouragement. And Paul's saying, I was willing to be left behind at Athens, the pagan city of Athens, as a follower of Jesus, trying to share the gospel, knowing that persecution was right around every corner, I was willing to be left behind alone. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that he was a genuine disciple maker, that he was caring for the disciples that he had left behind in Thessalonica. Here's the thing. The degree to which we are willing to make personal sacrifices for a cause is directly correlated to the degree of value we place on that cause. The, 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 the degree to which we are willing to make personal sacrifices for a cause is directly correlated to the degree of value we place on that cause. Let me give it to you in a little bit, a shorter statement. We make sacrifices for what we value. We make sacrifices for what we value. It's not that we don't ever make sacrifices for things. It just depends on what we value as to what we make sacrifices for. And here's something you might not know about me. Some of you do because I talk about it sometimes, but something you may not know about me. I really like breakfast. Okay? Just putting that out there. I really like breakfast. I really like a, a good cooked breakfast. I'm a breakfast guy. I like breakfast. I'd rather eat a big old breakfast and then not eat for hours. That's just me. Now, not a, listen, listen. Some of you, when you think breakfast, you're thinking Pop-Tarts and cereal. That's not what I'm talking about. 
That's not a good breakfast, okay? That's not, I'm talking about a sausage and bacon, gravy biscuits, scrambled eggs, cheesy hash browns with some onions and peppers mixed in there, right? Uh, uh, country ham, red-eyed gravy, uh, pancakes, and then top it all off with some blackberry jam spread on some homemade bread, right? Some homemade bread. I'm looking at a good homemade bread baker over there. Uh, I mean, that, that's my kind of, of, uh, of breakfast. Now, listen. On, on Saturday mornings, uh, a lot of times, my daughters like for me to make pancakes. And I could get up and I could just dump some pre-made mix into a bowl, mix some water in it, or however you make those kind of pancakes. I don't really know. And, um, and then you mix and then voila, you got some quick pancakes. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. They, they taste good. But because I place a high value on high-quality pancakes, I'm willing to sacrifice a little extra sleep on Saturday morning. I'm willing to sacrifice some, 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 an easy cleanup afterwards, and I get up a little bit earlier, and I get all the ingredients out, and I make the best made-from-scratch pancakes you have ever put in your mouth. All right. Now I have I have I have witnesses. Okay, this isn't just me. I have, I have witnesses. All right, that, that, that agree with me. I value that enough that I am willing to make sacrifice. It would be so much easier just just to just to put some cereal in a bowl and eat it. But I'm willing to get up a little earlier to make that good cooked breakfast. We make sacrifices for what we value. Now, in the grand scheme of things, that's very trivial. It's very trivial, but I think it makes the point. Listen, making disciples is not easy. It requires us to be inconvenienced. It requires us to make sacrifices. But as verses 19 through 20 said, if you'll look back, when when disciples are our glory and joy and hope and crown of boasting, we welcome the opportunity to make sacrifices for the sake of strengthening disciples. But now Paul explains his purpose. Why is he willing to make this sacrifice? What's his, what's his hope as he makes a sacrifice to be left alone and send Timothy, his, one of his most trusted companions, back to Thessalonica? What is he hoping is accomplished? Number two today, disciple making, excuse me, disciple makers encourage disciples to remain faithful in the face of persecution. Disciple makers encourage disciples to remain faithful in the face of persecution. Listen, he wasn't sending Timothy back there just to say, hey, how's it going? How y'all been doing? He was on a mission, and his mission was to help them stand firm in the faith, in the face of disciple making. I mean, here's the scene. Paul and Silas, they showed up in Thessalonica. They preached the gospel for a period of time. Some people believe in Jesus. Some of those who don't believe formed a mob. They attacked the house of one of the believers, and Paul and Silas leave town in the middle of the night. And so the last time Paul saw the Thessalonian believers, he witnessed brand new believers in Jesus experiencing persecution for their faith in Jesus. And there's no reason for him to believe that that persecution has led up at all. So we can see why Paul is so concerned. He's concerned that Thessalonian believers are being shaken, that they're being moved away from their faith in Jesus as they face strong opposition, harsh affliction, and real persecution for believing in the gospel. And so he sends Timothy, a brother, a co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Notice what Timothy is to do. He is to establish and exhort them in their faith so that they will not be moved, so that they'll stand firm. These two words, establish and exhort, you may have uh, some different words just depending on your translation. There's different ways to translate uh, these words. They have behind them, they're two different words, but they have a similar uh, meaning. And they have behind them this, this strengthening aspect to them. 
That's what he's going to do. He's going to strengthen them. It's not just that he's going to give them hugs and, and, and say, oh, you know, it, it'll be over soon and just kind of love on them a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that. But he's, more, he's, he's got a more proactive mission than that. He is going to strengthen them and train them to actively stand firm and thrive as Christians in the face of persecution. And at least one of the tactics used to strengthen disciples so that they remain faithful in the, in the face of persecution is seen uh, by what Paul writes in these verses. Let's look back at these verses. He says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Now, here's the tactic. How are they going to establish and exhort? How are they going to strengthen them to stand firm? That no one be moved by these afflictions for this. Excuse me, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. It's interesting. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, what's their tactic? Their tactic in strengthening the disciples in Thessalonica is to provide realistic expectations regarding suffering for the gospel. To provide realistic expectations regarding suffering for the gospel. Their message to the Thessalonian believers wasn't, just hang in there, this too shall pass. By the way, that's not in the Bible anywhere, even though sometimes people say it is. You must be doing something wrong or else you wouldn't be suffering opposition like this. Oh, maybe you should lessen your stance on the gospel. Maybe you're maybe you're holding to it a little too fast. And so you need to lessen it so you don't offend so many people. Or or if you just have more faith then God will bless you by taking away the persecution. No, that is not what Paul and Silas and Timothy's message is to the Thessalonians. Here's what they're saying. Their, their, their message to them is this. Thessalonian disciples, you're experiencing persecution. Guess what? This is exactly what should be happening to you. Exactly what should be happening to you. You can expect persecution as long as you are alive on this earth. In fact, God's not punishing you for lacking faith. This is what he has destined you for as believers. This is evidence that you have saving faith. This is proof that you belong to God. Don't be moved away. Don't be shaken from the truths of the gospel thinking that something is wrong. Instead, stand firm in the gospel even when the world doesn't like it. We told you over and over when we were with you that the path of suffering is the path of of disciples of Jesus because the path of suffering was the path of Jesus, our master. And now you see that our prediction is proving to be true. That's how Paul and Silas and Timothy strengthened the disciples. Listen, church, as disciple makers, we must be ready to encourage disciples to remain faithful in the face of persecution. Even letting them know that they can expect it as they follow after Jesus. Not trying to get them to avoid persecution. One of the ways we do that is by providing realistic expectations up front when we lead them to faith in Jesus and then continually reminding disciples of those expectations as we help them grow in their walk with Jesus. Disciples of Jesus should expect to suffer for their faith. Let's just be honest for a minute. We, we like, we really like, and there's nothing wrong with liking this, we really like to talk about the benefits of following Jesus. We like to talk about going to heaven when we die. We like to talk about the fact that he never leaves us, never forsakes us. We like to talk about the fact that we have a a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And we should like talking about those things. And we ought to talk about those things. But we can't neglect talking about the reality of suffering for followers of Christ. And if you think about it, being upfront and honest about the reality of suffering for Christ is a great way to help disciples stand firm. And here's why. Because being caught off guard 
is a shortcut to defeat, but realistic expectations can help you stand firm and battle to the end. Being caught off guard is a shortcut to defeat, but realistic expectations can help you stand firm and battle to the end. Uh, when I was in high school, I was on the cross-country team, and, um, and uh, we, we had a home course one year that was extremely challenging, at least certain parts of it. About three-quarters of the way through the 3.1-mile course, we had to run down this really steep hill. Probably one of the steepest hills I ever to run, had to run down in a, in a cross-country race. And, but that wasn't, that's not hard, right, running downhill. The problem was you had to run back up a hill when you got to the bottom. But it's even worse than that. Most of the time, you kind of keep, get that momentum as you're going down. It kind of carries you up the next hill. This particular hill, you ran down it. You basically came to a complete stop. You turned around, and you ran back up it. It was, it was brutal. It was our own course, and I, I hated that part of the course. It was tough. And so we were getting ready to host another school for a race. And as we were getting ready, we were doing a strategic run-through of the course. And one of my coaches said, listen... The killer hill, that's probably what we called it, the killer hill, the killer hill, it, it, it's, that's where you're going to win the race. I was like, what? You have lost your mind. I, I was like, that's, that's crazy. That's where I'm going to win the race? I hope I make it back up that hill, right? I hope I'm still running when I, when I get to the top. If, if I get to the top, he said, that's where you're going to win. But... He was a former state champion cross-country runner, and he was a really good coach, and so I listened to what he had to say. Here's what he said. He said, both you and the other school's top runner have to run up this hill. You both have to do it. You've got to run down, you've got to stop, and you've got to come back up. you both got to do the same thing. The difference is that you know that it's coming, and he doesn't. And you are going to beat him mentally when he comes down this hill and realizes all of a sudden that he's got to stop turn around and run right back up that really steep hill that he just ran down, he's going to throw in the towel. He's going to give up right there. You, on the other hand, will be mentally prepared. He said, you make that turn, and with all your strength, you get back up that hill like you own it, and you will be wore out when you get to the top, but he's going to be checked out, and the race is going to be yours to win. Well, there I find myself running shoulder to shoulder with this guy battling for the lead, and we're, we're headed down this hill, and we get to the bottom and we make that turn. And as we make, basically stop and make that turn, and he realizes in that moment that he's got to run back up that hill with zero momentum, literally, he let out an audible groan. He went, because we're, you know, we're, and all of a sudden I, we turn and he goes, oh, like that. I think he said, you got to be kidding me, something like that. And, and, and here's what I knew. In that moment, I knew three things. Number one, that he just threw in the towel. He was done. Number two, my coach knew exactly what he was talking about. And number three, I was going to win that race. And the only thing that my competitor saw the rest of that race uh, was my back. And, uh, and I beat him. I beat him. It wasn't really because I was a much better runner than him. I, I just knew what was coming. I, I knew what was ahead. And it helped me battle to the end. Being caught off guard is a shortcut to defeat, but realistic expectations can help you stand firm and battle to the end. Christian, as much as we are destined for eternal glory, sharing the riches of Christ with him for all of eternity, as much as we are destined for that, until we reach that place, we are destined to suffer for following after 
Jesus. That's what this text says. I'm not making that up. That's what God's word says. And we need to know that for ourselves and we need to share that with other believers that we get to disciple so they are not caught off guard. We don't want to sugarcoat what it means to follow Jesus. It's hard and we want to be upfront about that. Paul is determined in his disciple making ministry to always give realistic expectations of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Listen to Luke's description of Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 14. He says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But Paul's just making this stuff up. No. He was taking his cues right from Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words uh, the, the night before he was crucified. He told his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will, not might, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's move on to the third and final thing that I want us to learn about disciple makers today. Disciple makers make sacrifices. Disciple makers uh, are upfront about persecution and they strengthen the faith uh, of disciples. But number three, disciple makers engage in spiritual battle for the benefit of disciples. Disciple makers engage in spiritual battle for the benefit of disciples. We just saw Paul being realistic about the presence of persecution in the lives of believers. And now in verse five, we see him speak realistically about the presence of a spiritual enemy. In fact, it's the second time that he's done this in just a few short verses. You'll recall last week he spoke about Satan hindering him from coming. He says here in verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, he's making it personal, not even talking about we anymore. He said, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Church, don't miss what he's saying. Behind the affliction, behind the persecution, behind the voice of his accusers in Thessalonica who are speaking negatively about him and his companions so that the believers will turn away from him and turn away from the gospel and turn away from Jesus. Behind all of that stands who he calls the tempter. That is the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, the serpent from the garden, the accuser, the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan, the enemy of God, stands behind this, the seeking to make them waver in their faith. See what Paul does? He looks past the human element of the persecution and he sees the spiritual realm. He points the Thessalonians to a battle much deeper than what appears on the surface to, just to be some people who simply don't like Paul and Silas and Timothy. It's deeper than that. There is a battle going on. Satan is waging war against the mission of God. Satan hates God's love and mercy and grace. He hates the victory that Jesus won on the cross and secured through his resurrection. Satan actively opposes the good news that people can be snatched from his hand through faith in Jesus. He doesn't like it. And so Paul, a genuine disciple maker, is ready to go to battle against Satan on behalf of the disciples he is making. He is willing to make disciples in order to uh, in order to engage in spirit, excuse me, to make sacrifices in order to engage in spiritual warfare on behalf of those disciples whom he loves so much for their spiritual benefit. Paul is eager to pour himself out to strengthen 
disciples so they'll stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You see, if Satan is going to try to use persecution to shake the believers, Paul said, I'm going to fight back. I'm not going to sit on the sidelines. I'm going to fight back by sending in some reinforcements. If I can't get there myself, I'm going to send Timothy. Or I'm going to send a letter to them, which we see that he did. Or as we'll see in verses 11 through 13 of this chapter, I'm going to pray strategically for them. I'm going to engage in spiritual warfare from a prayer standpoint on their behalf. Jesus told a parable about a farmer sowing seed. You're probably familiar with this parable. In that parable, some of the seed fell on different the seed fell on different types of soils. It's a parable about how the gospel, when we when we proclaim it to people, it, it falls in different kind of hearts, and people receive it or not receive it in different ways. In that parable, some of the seed fell on rocky ground and sprang up. But soon it withered away right when the sun came up. Why? Because on that rocky ground it didn't have any roots. It was not strong. Those roots weren't deep. Jesus said in his explanation, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So here's what Paul is doing. Paul is determined to not let the enemy pluck up what he has planted. Paul has planted the seed of the gospel there, and he is determined not to let the enemy pluck it up. So he is willing to make sacrifices. He is, in, he is willing to, to uh, be left behind in Athens alone. He is willing to engage in spiritual warfare so that these disciples will stand firm in their faith. Listen, if today you're thinking that being a follower of Jesus is just too difficult, if you're tired of being called names by those in our society who hate Christianity, if you feel like throwing in the towel when it comes to your faith in Jesus, I want you just to remember this, that Satan is behind that temptation. That's the voice of Satan. That's not the voice of the Lord. And all Satan cares about is destroying you. So my, my encouragement to you, if that's you, is to stand firm in your faith. Or perhaps you know someone, maybe a, a younger believer in the Lord, and you know that that person is being tempted to throw in the towel. Perhaps uh, you know another Christian who is under pressure to renounce the name of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Will you be a genuine disciple maker and do whatever it takes to learn about that person's faith and encourage them to stand strong? Or will you just sit on the sidelines and let Satan pluck them up? Paul said, I sent to learn about your faith. I sent to learn about your faith. He didn't send to learn about their physical health. He didn't send to learn about their status in society. He didn't send to learn whether or not they were fitting in well with those around them. He sent to learn about their faith. Let me ask you something. When was the last time you sought to learn about someone else's faith? When was the last time I sought to learn about someone else's faith? When was the last time you asked a brother or sister in Christ, how is your faith, how is your walk with the Lord going? You see, we can talk about a lot of things as Christians without ever actually talking about how we are doing in our relationship with the Lord. You know what? The tempter loves it when we do that. When we say a lot of things to one another, but they really don't make any difference in our spiritual lives. Can I, can I speak just for a moment to, to our parents 
who are raising children right now. I just want to speak, and that means I'm talking to myself as well. I'm in that, in that category. So I'm talking to me, talking to you. Do you know that you are the primary disciple makers for your children? It's, it's not me. It's not the pastor. It's not a Sunday school teacher, whoever your kid's Sunday school teacher is. It's you, parents. You are the primary disciple maker of your children. And so, parents, let me ask you a question. Do you have a child? Some, many of you, like me, have children in the home who aren't followers of Christ yet. As disciple makers, the first step is sharing the gospel with them so that they come to faith in Jesus. But if you have a child in the home or maybe multiple children who have trusted in Jesus Christ, when was the last time you asked your son or daughter how his or her walk with the Lord is going? When was the last time you picked your child up from school or from practice and said, how, how did it go following Jesus today? You see, we're quick to ask, how did your test go? How much homework do you have? Did you talk to the counselor about those scholarships? Did you turn your assignment in on time? Or did the coach say whether or not you're going to get to start in the next game? We're quick to ask those questions, and that's fine. I'm not saying don't ask those. But when was the last time your child got in the car and you said, how did you do following Jesus today at school or at practice? What challenges did you face as a Christian today? How was your faith? How can I help you? How can I pray for you as you seek to follow after the Lord? Parents, Satan is waging war against the souls of your kids. Will you go to battle on their behalf? Will you live on mission in your own home, strengthening those young disciples God has placed under your care? Maybe it's not your children that you need to ask that. Maybe it's a spouse that you need to ask, how's your faith in the Lord doing? Perhaps you need to ask uh, ask, uh, the child or the, the youth or the adult that you teach Sunday school to. How, how is your faith in the Lord doing? Maybe it's a, a friend that you go to church with and you need to ask them, how is your faith in the Lord today? When was the last time we asked someone that? May our conversations in the body of Christ reveal that we are engaging in spiritual battle against the enemy on behalf of one another, not sitting on the sidelines talking about the same things that non-believers talk about. Listen, Satan loves it when Christians talk with one another, but say nothing to actually strengthen one another's walk with the Lord. We can say a lot of nice things to one another, but sometimes those are the same things that non-Christians would say to one another if they were trying to help one another out. What makes our conversations Christian? We point people to Jesus. We say, stand firm, stand strong to the end. Church, we must live on mission, strengthening disciples to stand firm in their faith in the face of persecution and anything else that would come in and tempt them to waver in their faith. But listen, I'm sick of talking about the tempter, right? I don't want to keep talking about him. All this talk about the tempter just makes me want to talk about the one who never, ever, ever gave in to the tempter's temptation. It makes me want to think about the one who died to free us from our enslavement to the sin that the tempter tempts us to commit. It makes me want to worship the one who rose up from the grave, crushing the head of that nasty tempter. It makes me want to live on mission for the one who is coming back one day to bind up that tempter once and for all and throw him into hell. It makes me want to encourage disciples to stand firm in the face of persecution To not listen to the voice of the tempter, but to continually follow after Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and right now you are in the clutches of the tempter. You're in his grasp because you have never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation. And so I plead with you today. Listen, the tempter is real. 
And Jesus is the only one who can snatch you out of His hand. So what you need to do is to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He will rescue you from the tempter. Or maybe you're here today and, and you feel like your faith is on shaky ground because of persecutions coming from family or co-workers or, or peers and, and, and you just feel like, ah, oh, sometimes it's just hard and I was going to throw in the towel. Friends, church family, don't be discouraged by persecution. Expect it and remain strong in your faith as you keep living for the one who died for you. He is worthy of your life. Maybe you're here today and you know that God wants you to be more engaged in making disciples because that's what disciples do. Is they make more disciples. So let me ask you a question. Who is it that God has placed in your life to whom you can be an encouragement in their walk with the Lord? It might be somebody that lives under the same roof with you. It might be a, an extended family member. It might be a, somebody in our church that, that God has placed, that He's given you a relationship with, and, and you, you know that God wants to use you as a, as a, as a tool of strengthening in that, in that disciple's life. Will you do it? Will you be available to the Lord? Will you make sacrifices? Will you inconvenience yourself? Sometimes you've got you to gotta make sacrifices in your schedule, in your routine. Sometimes you've got to get out of your comfort zone to ask those hard questions about, hey, how is your walk with the Lord going? And then there's an enemy on top of all that who wants to make it difficult. But church, just fix your eyes on Jesus. Trust that He will give you the strength to help you follow Him by strengthening other disciples. And then, listen, go Get in the battle. Go get in the battle. Pour yourself out into encouraging disciples to view suffering for Christ as normal so they will stand strong against the enemy. Missional strengthening. Church, it is the mark of a genuine disciple maker. Let's be genuine disciple makers. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask in these next few moments as we respond to the time of reflection and then through song, Father, we ask that you would help. Father, that you would help us know how you want us to apply your word to our lives today. Father, I pray that our church would be an army of disciple makers engaging in the battle, making sacrifices so that we can make stronger and stronger disciples of you who will go out and make more disciples and help strengthen them to make more disciples, helping strengthen them. As we look forward to that day, as we prepare for that day when all disciples from all nations will worship you around your throne. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.